Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Yeah, I was like, whoa, this is some Hamlet shit. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerd App Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except in podcast form. This month's pick is David Yoon's Version Zero. It's a techie, thrillery novel about a dude named Max who works at a social media company named Ren. It's the company that everyone belongs to, which everyone hates, and I'm sure you can already imagine what the real-life analog for that might be. When his bosses ask him to help design a way to collect even more data from Ren users, he has concerns and then he gets fired. So he and his buddies cook up a way to get back at the industry. There's a love triangle and a reclusive billionaire and a lot of scheming. I want to leave it at that for now. I am very excited to introduce you to our guests today. With us, we have Elise Hugh. She's a host at large for NPR who also served as NPR's bureau chief in Seoul and has done a lot of reporting on tech and culture. Elise, hey. Hey there. So excited to be here. Oh my gosh, so excited to have you. We also have Samir Pandya. You might remember his book, Members Only, was a Nerd App Book Club pick last August. In addition to writing, he teaches in the Asian American Studies Department at the University of California in Santa Barbara. Hey, Samir. Hey, Greta. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, I'm very excited for this chat. So here is your spoiler warning. If you haven't read the book yet and that stresses you out, get out of here. There's a spoiler-free chat with David Yoon in the Nerdette feed. If you haven't read the book and you love spoilers, you're welcome to hang. Um, I think this book invites a lot of really interesting questions around the internet and data collection and just kind of our complicity with a lot of that. I want to make sure we have time to be able to zoom out and talk a little bit about some of those ideas, but I think we should start with some more plotty stuff from now. Um, I mentioned Ren is the social media company where Max works initially. Their number one rule is don't be evil, which I think says a lot. That's one of those where it's like, you shouldn't have to say that, right? Well, we (laughs) should point out that is a reference to Google too, because in the early days of Google, yes. Um, here I am with the footnotes. Perfect. Sorry. No, I love it. Sorry to Hughes Blaine. But um, <laughs> yeah, in the early days of Google, they basically had a motto that they lived by, which was don't be evil. And actually, in recent years, when there's been a lot of internal dissent, the employees have said, we have really gone away from this whole don't be oh, evil thing. Wow. And so it's a little nod to that, I thought. That's so interesting. Or that's how I received it. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I didn't know that. It's, I don't know. It's so interesting because it on one point it's such a low bar but on the other hand like looking around it's like well i guess we all should be aspiring to that more too you know sure (laughs) um so as i mentioned at the top max is asked to help with some super intense data mining stuff he isn't supposed to know this but he finds out the data is going to go to organizations like the nsa and the cia and russian intelligence he asks too many questions about it And not only does he get fired from Ren, but he also gets blackballed from other tech jobs. In the meantime, we meet Max's parents, who are immigrants from El Salvador. Um, 
They never reach total financial stability despite working several jobs. Max's dad doesn't really get what Max does. Max aspires to make enough money that he can, you know, get his parents a super nice house too. Um, we also meet one of Max's really good friends at work, his huge kind of secret crush to Akiko. She's the only elite female programmer at Ren, and she's dating Max's other friend, Shane. So there's our love triangle. Uh, the three of them kind of decide to go rogue. They decide to hack Ren and form a crew. Um, and I, I want to just kind of pause there for a second and ask you two what you thought of the story at this point. What did you think, Samir? You know, uh, I think we kind of begin in some ways at the end and then we kind of go back, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, one of the things that I really loved about this book is th- the w- speed with which David Yoon is able to move us forward, right? So mm-hmm. that he is kind of, we are in the Ren space for the first part of the book, right? We're there. And it almost feels like uh, that's where we're going to be, right? And I yeah. think that what I really appreciated is, you know, he's like, okay, we're done here. We're so, you know, <laughs> Max is fired. We're going to move on to other things, right? And I thought yeah. that that was something, you know, I, I, I think that that's often we are stuck in a note. And I really like the ways in which uh, uh, the author moves from note to note like this. And I think has enough characters around, has enough people coming in and out. So it really works in that we get a kind of freshness from part to part. I think that's a really good point because you're right that, I mean, that is not the only pivot we get in this book. You know, I think there are a number of times where you'd say, oh, I guess we're just here for the rest of this book. And it keeps shifting, which is, it makes for a very propulsive read, I think, you know? Yeah. Pivot is, that's actually a better word for it, right? Which is you you think you're on one road and then you're off to another one. And I, yeah. I, I really like that. What did you think, Elise? I was excited about the way the um, various hacks would escalate in nature. Mm-hmm. So the this love triangle goes rogue, Shane, <laughs> Max, and Akiko, and they escalate from what seems like a very successful hack in the first place. Their first hack is to take away our ability to like things. That is mm-hmm. like the thumbs up um device, I guess, on Twitter. Or not on Twitter, on, on Facebook. Facebook. But I guess it exists in Twitter and exists in Instagram as well, right? right the hearts right. and Instagram. And who doesn't love those numbers? Right. Yeah. This, the approval that we get and the way that it feeds our... And everybody who understands how social media preys on our sort of lizard brains, and which we all kind of understand now, but didn't back in 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. We all understand kind of how it uses the tricks of a slot machine, the, right. this reward, this intermittent reward to keep our attention. And all of the social media giants gamify this, right? And so at their first hack, which they thought was very clever, was to take away the ability to do that. So you couldn't be fed with the approval that you're looking for on social platforms. Mm-hmm. And they thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to make people delete their accounts. But that didn't last very long. People still came back. And then it escalated to the next hack, which was to reveal the trolls. So the people who are anonymous on the internet and Holocaust deniers, or they are anonymously shaming others for various reasons, and it can get very nasty. I mean, we know yeah, oh we know the political implications of it, right? So they would track all those folks down and unmask them. So that was the big second hack. And I think it was after the second hack where they caught the attention of mm-hmm. Pilot Markham. And I'll mm-hmm. set you up to talk about that. Well, yeah. So Pilot Markham, I mean, he's the reclusive billionaire and 
he kind of pieced out from the world three years ago. He was a tech guy and he and nobody really knows what happened to him. And uh, we meet him and we don't know a lot of his backstory initially. We know he's still super plugged into what's going on, but that he chooses to distance himself from it. And then we also meet Braden, who is Pilot's neighbor. Who's, he's a teenager. He's the son of very wealthy people who like kind of don't pay any attention to him. I forget where they are, but they're like Tenerife, right? The Canary <laughs> Islands. Yes. Yes, okay. There you go. And so, yeah, Braden is just like on his own. And I don't know, he kind of becomes sort of like a Igor style sidekick to <laughs> Pilot Markham where he's just like he's hanging out. He's running errands. He's maybe not the brightest guy, but he he seems genuinely kind, at least. And he's like super game, which I think also is kind of a fun dynamic. You know, he's a real foil to Pilot Markham because Pilot Markham is written as this character who's a super genius. So he's mm-hmm. not just a tech founder who is not technical. He's a highly technical tech founder, which is to mm-hmm. say he personally was a programmer and was and understands the deep underbelly of data centers and data exchanges and just the internet and innovation. And this is an important plot point because he ends up using his genius later. And they call him the J.D. Salinger of tech. (laughs) (laughs) I roll. I'm so glad you pointed that out. One thing I really loved that I didn't quite understand early on in the book, but which made itself much clearer at the end is there was this device going through it that I I imagine y'all picked up on too. There were almost these like parenthetical descriptions of things, you know, acronyms like FOMO or just other like internet lingo that it took me a really long time to figure out because, you know, this book takes place in 2018. So it's, you know, it's not like, the internet is in fact a relic from where we stand reading this in 2021. And of course it becomes clear by the end. And I think it's actually really fascinating foreshadowing. I'm not sure it totally worked for me the whole way through, but I thought it was a really interesting, I don't know, kind of tone, you know, Samir, what do you think of that device? Cause you're actually yeah. an author. I, yeah. I figured out what they were doing or what David Yoon was trying to do, right? He was trying to make us feel a certain kind of, foreignness about this the way that we live right Uh or that the tech was foreign Um, but how did it work for you you know I thought about that a lot right so this is I mean in some ways this is the challenge in writing a tech novel right because between the conceptualization the writing the editing and the publishing everything has changed right so that whatever (laughs) you put in the book itself in some ways by the time the book comes out unless you are changing stuff until the end you are (laughs) You just can't do it, right? You know, I think with with those moments, with the parenthetical stuff, it's this interesting balance that the novelist has to reach, right? Which is the reader does not want to be, want stuff explained to, right? And so I think mm. you have to be careful about that. But I think maybe, Greta, I'm wondering if when it it worked for you for a while, but then there's a moment you think, oh, here it is again. And the mm-hmm. second you see that here it is again, I think, you're almost done with it, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, I, so, I mean, I, I, it didn't, it didn't kind of bother me that much that it was there, but I can see if you read it again and you begin to notice it. And once you notice stuff, that's when kind of your ears perk up a little bit. Yeah, totally. 
What did you think of it, Elise? Did it bother you or were it you? It really reminded me of a memoir. I don't know if y'all read mm. it last year or the year before. Anna Weiner, who actually worked oh, yeah. at GitHub and some other major tech companies, she wrote a coming of age memoir, a true story. Uncanny Valley. It, right. The book is called Uncanny Valley. And she wrote it in a way in which she never named the companies that she worked for. Right. So instead of saying Google, she would say the search engine giant down in Mountain View. Or instead mm-hmm. of Uber, she would call it an on-demand ride-sharing startup. <laughs> and so in that case, you had the real world that was anonymized or abstracted um, to have to make it feel like fiction. Whereas this, David Yoon, mm. was writing fiction and he <laughs> abstracted these things, which made it, I, I assume he was trying to make it feel more real, right? Because it was feeling like we could relate or we could kind of guess what Ren was and we could guess what Knowned was, which was kind of an analog to Reddit, I think. And so it was really interesting because it was the flip side of what Anna Weiner did with her real life memoir. Mm-hmm. But it worked really well, I think, in Uncanny Valley. I liked it and it made me feel as if I was in an actual sort of it's like a puzzle that you can figure out, but they're like giving you enough clues. Exactly. So you get to feel clever for knowing it because they didn't just say it blatantly. It wasn't just that. So that was kind of fun for me. But also what it did was it showed me or presented all of this as kind of absurdity, right? Like, mm, oh yeah. my gosh, these companies yeah. are nuts. It seems like you couldn't make up these bros, right? And Or the... <laughs> high-minded things that they were saying about trying to change the world. That's all in her real-life memoir. So if you liked the themes of this book and want to see how it played out in Silicon Valley in the 2010s, then I do recommend Uncanny Valley. You know, that was a Nerdette book club pick, too. We actually talked about it with Kara Swisher, which was really cool. Oh, yeah. I need to go back and listen to that conversation. Can we hope that someone writes a memoir called You Can't Make Up These Bros? Because I would, I would read that memoir very quickly. Please. That <laughs> should yours? be you. No, it should be you. <laughs> Sorry, Greta. Go ahead. The problem is I don't want to do the journalism to write that book. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of bros. <laughs> uh, let's listen to a voicemail. Here is Sarah. Hey, Nerdette. This is Sarah from Chicago calling about Version Zero by David Yoon. Um, I really appreciated that he explicitly called out the race of all of his characters. The phrase, two behooded white men, delighted me and continues to delight me now. I just like that he's pushing back against that particularly American habit of only identifying race when it's not white. Um, Really definitely appreciated that. Anyway, glad I read it. It was a great pick and looking forward to next month. Bye. I thought that was such an interesting uh, observation because you can tell that Yoon is really intentional about it. And I think it's great. Um, what did you all think about that? I liked that white men also was just one word. I thought that was really <laughs> delightful. <laughs> As somebody who is a person of color and grew up in the Midwest, I grew up in St. Louis where mm. it was white men and white women and white girls and white boys, one word, all around me. <laughs> I really internalized the idea that white was default. And so it's still surprising to me when white people um, are labeled as such. That breaks my heart. But But I liked it. It's refreshing. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm glad we're getting more of that, I suppose. What did you think, Samir? Two thoughts I had. First, you know, I love this idea of the the Max Akiko and Shane 
kind of multiracial caper we're in, mm. right? Which is, I love this mm-hmm. trio kind of, you know, like hightailing it from one kind of hack to another, right? So mm-hmm. then I think he does that in, in an intentional way and it, it works. None of it ever feels forced, right? That they're, they're a generational moment that the three of them kind of have come of age in and they feel... It doesn't feel like, oh, look, this is my Salvadoran American. <laughs> right. Right. That moment never occurs. The other thing, which I do think Yoon gets to in a really profound, interesting way, and he does it by going right at it, is the caste system. Silicon Valley mm-hmm. has this very clear caste system. And I think those are both of those things, you know, while never being heavy handed about it, you know, I love that that's kind of the way in which he labeled all of these different folks, right? The Brown programmers and everything. And we all know that that's kind of the world that it is. And I think I really appreciated the way he explored it. Yeah, I really liked, especially I think Max's relationship with his dad. I thought that brought up a lot of really, you know, kind of heartbreaking and intense, but also lovely themes around, you know, expectations of immigrant parents and, wanting to create something tangible that his dad could really understand and be proud of, but also hoping that tech could offer up something that would give him, you know, the enough dollars to really be able to create a positive impact on his parents' lives too. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought what, of course, I appreciated is in some version of this, this is the conversation I had with my my father and my parents when I wanted to become a writer, right? Like, mm. how, do you, how do you say, oh, this is all going to be okay, right? That there's <laughs> something, you know, hey, I think I want to write short stories for a living. What do you think mm. of that, right? Mm-hmm. And so even though I think there's, you know, a very clear generational difference between Max and I, uh, I really love the, both the kind of melancholy, but then also the intimacy of that relationship he has with both of his parents, but particularly his father. Yeah, it's it's an intimacy and an unreachableness, right? There yes. is this feeling that he loves them, he's so devoted to them, but there is this immigrant uh, generational gap in which they couldn't really understand each other, largely because their experiences, because Max was so much more fortunate, frankly, than his parents. Mm-hmm. So a lovely yeah. note there or a, a thread there that uh, I would have liked to explore more. Mm. So in a lot of ways, the second part of the book, kind of follows the like rich benefactor helps scrappy rebels Mm -hmm. trope i think you know the the crew goes out to pilot's mansion they scheme bigger hacks at least you want to explain some of the other hacks they do now i'm trying to remember okay so (laughs) so there's the de-anonymizing the trolls i was trying to remember i mean Someone dies, right? So there was a suicide, uh, right? There was suicide after de-anonymizing. The Holocaust denier in the second major hack before Pilot gets involved. Pilot gets involved. He invites the three, Max, Akiko, and Shane, to his compound. And so there is a period of sort of like getting to know each other. I think that's Mm -hmm. what we go into before they try and figure out what's next. They take a little vacation to a place called glass island Mm -hmm. and glass island oh glass island is when there's a little romance yeah so i like this section a lot me too partly because i think there are as you mentioned like there's some really lovely getting to know you moments and i think especially the conversations even before the romance just between max and akiko kind of about like what the internet could have been and whether or not it's even fixable 
you know, like that's where they mentioned the idea of two-way links, which I had never really considered and thought was super interesting. I feel like there's a lot of like meaty stuff to ponder in that part. Yeah. And you got the sense that Pilot wanted to see, we learn a little bit more about Pilot's backstory and Pilot losing Mm -hmm. his daughter because his daughter was doxxed, essentially, like doxxed really bad in Gorilla Gate, which was the analog to Gamergate, which happened in 2014. And there's some signposting that Pilot wants major change, like major systemic change that's possibly destructive. Because was it him who said something about how there so much shit changed in Japan after Hiroshima because everybody started looking inward and Japan stopped trying to conquer China or whatever. And then the line was something like an A-bomb will do that. (laughs) And so when you look back. Right. I was going to say that's some pretty strong foreshadowing right there that I had not anticipated. Right. But I did. You didn't realize it because you thought you were reading like a love triangle hijinks, tech hijinks right, story. Exactly. A romp. A romp. Exactly. From a YA author. Right. So the other thing was the context here is David Yoon is a YA author. Yeah, this is his first adult book. So I'm like, oh, this is going to be so cute. Will he wind up with Akiko? <laughs> and then those of you who read the book know that it's just this total bloodbath Hamlet at the end, you know, and then Fortinbras comes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But it is a bloodbath Hamlet situation at the end. I mean, it is. It is. And, you know, we'll get to the bloodbath. But (laughs) I would really love to talk a little bit about the love triangle because, um, well, let's let's listen to a voicemail. Let's let Ava set this one up. Here's Ava. I really did not like this book. If it wasn't for book club, I definitely wouldn't have finished it. (laughs) I didn't care or really like and even like to dislike any of the characters. The big five were awful. Um, Max was just annoying and especially hated the way Max treated his friends. You know, they're supposed to be his best friends in the world, but instead he's constantly pining after her and not respecting the choices that they made to be together. I don't know. It was just awful. And I am so much looking forward to hearing what you all have to say about it. And, uh, that's it. Thanks. Bye. I love that Ava's just keeping it real. Yep. Um, we did also hear from Allie, a longtime listener, who also thought the love triangle was a little overwrought. Uh, what did you think, Samir? Did it work for you? I am always, like, from my days of watching too much Dawson's Creek. You're like, here for it. I'm always <laughs> here for a love triangle. Oh, hey, oh, I feel seen. <laughs> I had Dawson's <laughs> Creek viewing parties. I've never said that on public radio before. <laughs> Welcome to Nerdat, Elise. <laughs> I'm always good for it, you know, because it is, it, it keeps you on the edge of your seat. And, you know, I think the beauty of the love triangle at a certain level is you can be any of the three points of the triangle, right? Mm. And I think that that's always what I've appreciated about it, the one making the choices, the one who's for whom the choices are made upon all of it, right? And so there is a way in which Shane gets the the least attention in the three, right? Mm, Yes. Uh, In the sense that I think he is kind of 
and, and I think purposefully in a certain way, the flattest of the three characters. Yeah. Right? Well, he's and like, so, he's hot and dumb is kind of how he's portrayed. Right. Yeah. And he cleans pools. Yeah. And he's a white guy. Yeah. He could have been drawn with more nuance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was Ava who'd said, you know, she couldn't even be bothered to dislike them. That mm. That's, that's a tough one, you know, I, I and then I think when we, as you said, she kept it real. And I think that that's, um, you know, it is sometimes that that reaction just occurs with them. Yeah. Well, and Ava also mentioned uh, the big five, which we haven't really gotten to, but those are like essentially the CEOs of the big five tech companies who show up at this conference that that the crew plans called Disconnect. And I don't know. I mean, I thought they were all kind of hilarious just how the extent to which they were wrought as just like obviously horrible people i thought was pretty funny did that work for you elise i liked how extreme they were and like their names like the whole thing Linda, it was just Belinda, like yeah. yeah river askew <laughs> yeah. but they were there to serve a point right they were there to sort of underline this idea that of the bro man and black halo which is the crew we should name the crew right the, yes, the, the crew yes, becomes right. um version zero or the movement is called version zero yes. and then they don a mask or max dons a mask which is a black halo mask mm-hmm. to uh disguise himself and Black Halo, there's one short chapter. This book is broken up into very short chapters, which I loved. Yeah. It helped yeah. it move for me. And yeah. in one of the chapters, it's just this manifesto from Black Halo. And I pulled it up because I highlighted something in it. And it says, mm-hmm. the goal of the bro man is not wealth. It is simply more. More than what other bromen have, the broman does this out of a bad evolutionary habit, a survival of the fittest that does not know where to stop. Mm-hmm. And that gets at one of the big themes of this book and big themes of this moment in mm-hmm. neoliberalism at its extreme or late capitalism, whatever you want to call it, where we are reckoning with these systems that we've wrought that are terrible for nature. They're not sustainable. They're not sustainable for humans or creatures. And yet, you know, greed and the quest for like unlimited growth means that we don't know when to stop or the system isn't going to stop itself. And I think that that's one of the big ideas that this rather dramatic tale (laughs) It pulls back um, the curtain on. Yeah. Well, in that question of how much is enough keeps coming up in kind of different contexts, but a lot of it is, you know, and I think it's really interesting to have this conversation shortly after Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson went to space too, right? Because it's such a like, yep. like, what do you have to do? When is it enough? You know, like you've literally now left the planet in your own rocket. <laughs> like, when do you call it? We, yeah. Right. We are not in a time. There's a really good book that addresses this as well. Um, and it is nonfiction. It's by Yuval Harari, who wrote Sapiens. And mm. it's the it's the sequel to Sapiens, which is called Homo Deus. And it's about where man goes after man is satisfied <laughs> with a lot of the sort of just basic survival with tech, the technology or the tools that we've come up with in order to survive like our needs our material needs are generally Maslow's hierarchy like we're good so what's next and so what's next and so what he posits is that 
after man stops having world wars, which are generally over, I hope for now, mm-hmm. um, and we have met our material needs, then what man wants to be is like gods. <laughs> and so that is kind of, and so you seek like beyond the liberal goals of freedom and security, right? And stability. Yeah, we'll go to the heavens. Right. Go into the heavens to be godlike, to change our bodies, right? Mm. To be more godlike. So you're seeing a lot of biohacking and the merging Hmm. of biology and technology in order to make man Superman. And um, you're seeing these guys, these billionaires go to space because I think it's following that general trend. So if these ideas are fascinating to you um, and you want to think about them philosophically, then I recommend Homo Deus. That's a great recommendation. Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we can dive in to the bloodbath. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. mentioned the conference it happens it takes place at this isolated property that pilot owns in the balkans um the ceos the big five show up Um, and we should mention why they've been invited to this conference yes they were lured there by pilot who right conveniently had been missing for three years and so they who view pilot as a peer Mm -hmm. wanted to sort of find out what Pilot's been up to. They were curious about Pilot. And so he was able to get them and lure them to this place in the Balkans. But Pilot and the squad wanted them there in order to um, sort of perform their big heist. Yes. I was just going to add that Pilot is peer, but then also Pilot as kind of the the godfather of the movement, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the person who had kind of done every, you know, had had whatever his version of reach space, which is kind of live on Glass Island, and mm-hmm. then had said, "Okay, I'm done. I don't I don't need to do this anymore." So I, I thought that there was hmm. the, the allure of them, kind of of he is the only one. Like these are whatever five smart people, you know, who are kind of desirous of more with everything. So they know kind of what the game is, right? So there's something I, I the sense I got with Pilot was that he has a certain kind of emotional or I don't know, spiritual or social pull on them that they could be like, okay, we will go there under these circumstances and have this chat with you. And it's effective. Yeah. They use that. They use the pull of Pilot to get them in one place so that they can steal all their data and expose them. <laughs> mhm. Yeah, and and yeah, expose them for being like incontrovertibly terrible people. Um and so There's video cameras everywhere as they right. have this really revealing chat. Yeah, it's like a live stream and so everybody's talking about it. It's and it seems like they do the thing that they wanted to do. It seems like the platforms are all kind of going to implode. Everybody's super freaked out. The big five want to get out of there. Max is like, yay, we did it. Like, high fives. We win. Uh, and that's when we get to the bloodbath. Just <laughs> when you thought it was safe and they could get out of there. 
And yeah, Max and Akiko could just like ride off into the sunset together or whatever. Appendages start getting blown off. Appendages. There are Suddenly, the CEOs are stuck. It is insane. It is completely insane. And it it turns out essentially that um, Pilot had this double motive for having this conference because he's got this vengeance scheme. He he wants to avenge the death of his daughter, which you referred to earlier, Elise. And... Oh my God, it's, he wants to kill them all and blow up the internet and he gets pretty damn close. I mean, he kills a lot of them. He ends up killing himself. It's, it's such an insane shift in the book. I actually listened to the audiobook of this one. And when I got to the section, I was just like, what is happening? What did you think, Samir? I mean, speaking of appreciating the pivots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I am, I am just a, a fan of just removing the rug underneath you, right? And I do <laughs> think so. A couple things. First of all, I know David Yoon as a YA writer, right? Yes. And it is interesting how what I really appreciated about this book is he is basically saying, I know you're reading me in a particular kind of way. Yes. Right. I am now going to mess with you with that. Yes. So that's the, 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 the meta piece of this that I really appreciated. Now, I mean, you, you know, Greta, you had that earlier question about the humor of this, right? And of course, I am not laughing at <laughs> the, the bloodbath. Right? Sure. But the, it's an incredibly absurd moment because the mm-hmm. world is absurd, right? So that there right. is, I think the only way to deal with the absurdity of this particular world that he is laying out for us is to have Pilot do something so ridiculous, right? And do something so horrific um, because it's almost as if it's the horrific that will finally make people pay attention, right? It's because part of, I think, mm-hmm. the point he's making is that we have stopped paying attention to a whole lot of things. We've stopped paying mm-hmm. attention to who kind of trolls whom and we we've expected it as a part of our no, normal kind of social discourse and uh, i think that it, as a as a plot point it's almost like that's where he needed to go in order to kind of think through all the stuff that he's set up for us that's a really i really appreciate that interpretation of it i think that makes a lot of sense uh perhaps unsurprisingly we heard from a couple of <laughs> listeners about the specific set of situations um, the set piece the giant <laughs> set piece at the end <laughs> yeah let's listen to keith and then we'll listen to liz out of five stars i'd give this book about a two and a half uh, i like that was an easy read and was not dense at all i finished it in about two days I really liked the first half. I thought it was really realistic to like how our world is today with social media. Um, but after Pilot started killing people, I thought it got too <laughs> unbelievable, too much like an action movie. Um, and I, I just didn't believe that a guy could fall 60 feet from a helicopter and survive. Um, oh, right. So that was my book. Thank you so much. Looking forward to the next one. I mean, yeah, there's I don't know. There's a helicopter I... escape straight out of MacGyver. <laughs> I to yeah, there's a fight escape. in which Mark Zuckerberg, aka Cal Pierce, <laughs> somehow comes back to life after falling 60 feet from a oh, helicopter. It's exquisite. It's exquisite. Let's listen to Liz. So, first of all, it felt like a huge genre mashup. It almost like felt like it was too much going on, but that being said, I also had no problems finishing the book in two days. Also, there was that one line in there, and I wish I had marked it because now I cannot find it, but they talk about like, what is real? Is your real self the one that you post online? Is your real self the one that you tell yourself? Is your real self the one that you share with your friends? And uh, it is really interesting, right? Because like, what do we tell to people that we don't necessarily know? 
but we feel like we know because we know so much about them online that we don't share with people one-on-one. Things to think about. I thought those were some really good points. And I think really that voicemail kind of illuminates what I really loved about this book, which is that like, yes, it got a little ridiculous. Yes, it felt a little overwrought in some places. But ultimately, I thought there were some really good questions posed that I think we all would benefit from spending more time thinking about. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it just reminded me that I saw a TED Talk that gets at those questions about what's real, which which personality of yours is the one. Hmm. It's by Caroline McHugh. Uh, It's called The Art of Being Yourself. And it talks about the idea of looking in a true mirror. It's a great talk. So to your listener who called in, I recommend a talk from Caroline McHugh. It's on the TED site called The Art of Being Yourself. Oh, I love that you're giving us so much homework. It's lovely. I'm just here with the footnotes, man. I like it. Invite me back. (laughs) Well, obviously, we're inviting you both back. Um, (laughs) Let's hear another voicemail. Here is Catherine. I liked this book. I wouldn't say that I loved it. The whole bit that goes down at the conference, I I won't say the book jumped the shark, but (laughs) we were getting real closer for a minute. As I thought back, though, to where Pilot's characters introduced in that really messed up scene with the viral video, um, there was some obvious foreshadowing of things going terribly wrong where this character was involved. So I probably should have seen the back half of this book coming. So yeah, thanks for this one. And now off to quit the internets. Bye. <laughs> Maybe instead of jump the shark, we could say jump to the helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> Zing. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it is, I'm wondering, I mean, all three of these listeners, I think had some concern about the ending, right? And mm-hmm. the, the, the bloodbath as, as set piece. And I think that one of the things that I was struck with in just terms of what Yoon is trying to lead us to at the end, right? Which is this idea that, you know, what does less look like? And, mm. and I'm wondering, I mean, one of the questions I had, and I'm wondering what the two of you think about this, which is that I, I'm, I'm wondering if the end almost got a little bit nostalgic, mm-hmm. that there was this, I don't know, this, this past that, pilot, of course, Pilot wants to get us to his, I mean, he wants to get to his past is because he wants to kind of regain this family that, that he lost because he was so invested in the future, that he was so invested in going into space, uh, so to speak, that he had lost sight of the things that he had. And I, I thought that, I mean, that's, I think, what I was struck with after the bloodbath and after, you know, the, the, the ending where, you know, uh, kind of we, we, we learned that so much of this stuff, the internet is down, right? And that people are writing letters again. And it, it was, I, I had kind of two minds about kind of, the nostalgia. And what I mean by that is, you know, I think in in our public discourse, there is a lot of conversation about like returning to some other place, right. Mm -hmm. Going back to the past. And of course I'm not comparing the two, but you know, that also has its own kind of troublesome nature as well. Sure. Let's make the internet great again. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Right. Because the internet, we should remember. So these tech bros, even in the book, they talk about how they want Mm -hmm. a return to the spirit of the early internet which was called ARPANET, which in which there yeah. was no big five. There was no scale, right? Because back then there was no there, there were no capital interests, no trolls, just a few hundred mm-hmm. users who trusted each other. 
But those users were largely white. They held up, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of normative culture that's now being challenged. Finally, there's it wasn't particularly inclusive. And so, no, I think that what we should be looking to when I think about this moment that we're in with big tech is a more mm-hmm. affirmative vision of the Internet, not to go back, but to go forward in a way mm-hmm. that's not so extractive. And that we don't get to explore. But in this story, mm-hmm which is great for what it is, it shows us how destructive mm-hmm. these forces can be, yeah. right? Because it's so extreme. Well, and Samir, I think you're totally right, too, that, I mean, for David Yoon, the nostalgia is real. It was interesting talking to him because he said it's an important mental exercise to think about what would happen if you lost everything. I think the genie's out of the bottle. There is no going back. But wouldn't it be interesting if you tried going back? Would you miss it? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I sure as hell would miss it. I know. I would, too. I would, too. I think there are so many upsides, especially over the past year, right? I mean, can you imagine being disconnected and isolated? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. ugh. You know, I, whenever you see, I, whenever I see kind of like five things that every writer should do, right? There's always one of them is like work on a computer that has no Internet access, right? And mm-hmm. I try doing that and I can't do it. You know, like I, I try so desperately. I'm like, I'm going to put this on airplane mode. I'm going to put my phone away. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I love the idea that I'm going to be able to kind of have these kind of whatever three, four or two hours of the day when I don't do it. But for good and bad, we have been rewired to kind of need all of this stuff. And um, I think it, the question is how, how how you manage it. But I think you're right that in the past year, you know, we, we've just needed this, right? Like the kind of um, the, the the new kind of Zoom protocols that have been produced or that I've been, that have been produced in my own life with mm-hmm. kind of the family and all of this is has, I think, saved us in this process. Yeah, we have a couple of voicemails to this point, too. Let's take a listen. Uh, we'll hear Claire and then Katie. Hey, Nerdette, this is Claire from Dallas, Texas. Oh, my gosh, I, I cannot stop talking about this book. It, it was so good, but I'm so bothered that it just turned into like a literal bloodbath. Like, I was totally blindsided by Pilot, and I was totally blindsided by the fact that Max went through with destroying all of those servers in the backbone of the internet. Like, it makes me want to do the same thing, but like, obviously with less death. And then I keep coming back to the fact that like, that's not possible in the world that we live in. Like I'm over here recording this message on like Google recorder. And Mm -hmm. like, how do we end up in a world that has less technological influence and we don't share our data without causing complete chaos and death. So I'm really looking forward to this podcast to see what you all think, because I don't even know anymore. (laughs) Let's listen to Katie and then we can chat about it. Hi, Greta and friends. This is Katie from Chicago. I enjoyed the book. It's something I wouldn't normally read. So thank you for expanding my horizons. It made me think and I really liked the cadence. And uh, I wanted to say that it's been about a week since I finished the book and my behavior on the Internet has definitely changed because of it. I'm just a lot more cognizant of how I am a data point and how my data is the product. Um, And I think that's a really powerful effect for a book to have. So, yeah, I think that's kind of a good note to sort of end on, too. Mm -hmm. Do you think this book has changed how you're interacting with the Internet, Samir? You know, (laughs) 
I don't know if it's changed the way I'm interacting with it. I think it has changed the way I actually think of myself, Mm. right? Mm. And I think what is so profoundly difficult about this is that you know that it is happening and yet you somehow continue to do it. You know, I, I got a new iPhone, whatever, a couple of months ago, and this one had the facial recognition on it. Mm. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm doing this, but it's going to be so much easier when I need mm-hmm. to open up my phone. And there it is, right? And so I think you make those constant uh, kind of adjustments and suddenly you've adjusted yourself away. Yeah. What do you think, Elise? I think that where the internet is and what has happened to it, how it, how co-opted it has been by capitalist interests is a variation on a theme, right? It's this theme that we constantly ask individuals to take both the blame for systemic problems and the responsibility for solving them. So Mm. now it's on us to make individual decisions to curtail our association with social platforms instead of these social platforms changing the way they, they, you know, use us, right? Mm -hmm. Or conceptualize us. And I hate, hate, hate that we users are dependent on the benevolence of these dictators, you know, over these companies, right? These, the big five of reality. Mm-hmm. And um, we should challenge that. And a lot of, a lot of this can be taken care of or addressed in some ways. I don't know what Kara Swisher had to say, but I'm guessing that she would also say something similar to there needs to be a lot of policy change, right? Yeah. There, there, <laughs> there can be stronger regulation of the way that our data are handled and a million other solutions that are out there. So it's just a shame that we have to make these decisions for ourselves when we mm-hmm. are kind of the lab rats um, mm-hmm. in this larger social experiment. For sure. So before I let you two go, we always choose a like completely arbitrary rating system to rate Uh-oh. each month's book okay. on. Uh-huh. Um, and we decided on Brad's. Because I just thought it was so funny that there were plural brads at Wren and <laughs> the behoodied white men, if you will. Right. It was one brad. It was like, right. The cool boss. Brad, right. Exactly. So from one to ten brads, brads in this case being a good thing, which I know is a little like requires a little bit of mental gymnastics. Uh, how many brads would you give this book? Samir? Oh, um. <laughs> Um, I, I would give, I would give this eight brads. Mm -hmm. It, 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 you know, I, 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 I love the book There, there is, you know, as with all books, there's just some, some kind of things that didn't quite work for me, but I think what worked is literally, I finished reading this book about a week and a half ago and I have been thinking about the book a lot. Mm. And so I think that's, if it has a kind of a long tail in the way that this one does, I think it works really well for me. Yeah. I was about to say the exact same thing. I would give it mm. eight brads, but for a different reason. One, I find David Yoon incredibly readable. So mm-hmm. I like his prose. And then two, I award more brads or, you know, stars or hearts, whatever, <laughs> thumbs up likes mm-hmm. to books that I can get through quickly. Right. Mm. Where I'm not bored. Yes. And so and this book, for everything it is, it's not boring. 
No, no, it's not at all. Yeah, I think I'm going to give it nine because, I mean, to all of your points, but I think also I'm so, I really am grateful for the conversation. I think it changed the way that I'm kind of looking around at stuff. And I, you know, it's probably not going to last as long as it ideally would my, you know, additional attention to these things. But I think it's really important. And I'm, you know, I'm glad we're having the conversation. You know, one quick thing I just wanted to add is one of the things that I particularly appreciated about this book. You know, Zadie Smith a while ago, I think, reviewed Social Network when it first came out. Hmm. And it's it's an essay that I kind of return to over and over again. It's in Feel Free, her collection. And I think the name of the essay is Generation Y. And when I reread the essay after I finished reading this book, there's a I'm going to read you a line, which I think why it works so well with this book is that I think David Yoon has produced a work of fiction that in, in essence extrapolates on what Smith says. So this is, a, it's very quick. It says, then again, the more time I spend with the tail end of generation Facebook in the shape of my students, the more convinced I become that some of the software currently shaping their generation is unworthy of them. Mm-hmm. They are more interesting than it is. They deserve better. Wow. And I, I think in some ways what Yoon does really profoundly well is Max is figuring out how they can deserve better. And I think that that's what struck with me quite a bit about this book. Elise, Samir, thank you both so much for reading this book and talking with me about it. I thought this was really fun. I had so much fun. I want to do it again. Yes, please. Yes, thank you for for having me. And thank you. You know, I'm looking forward to us all watching Dawson's Creek together sometime soon. (laughs) I don't want to (laughs) wait. That's it for today. We'll have a regular episode in the feed for you later this week. In the meantime, let's do the internet in a good way. You can say hey to us online, join our Facebook group, tell us what your hopes for the digital future are. You can find the show at Nerdat Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And our Facebook group is called Nerdat Headquarters. Let's see if we can't get this thing a little closer to back on track at least. And don't worry, if you didn't get a chance to write down all of Elise and Samir's recommendations, we will have them in this Friday's newsletter. You can sign up for that by going to wbez.org slash nerdetaf. And hey, of course, we would love for you to read along with us for the August book club selection as well. We did a poll on Instagram. The book that won was Kazuo Ishiguro's Clara and the Sun. This episode was produced by me and Isabel Carter, and our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.